So I did make this chart that's too small to read, but here's the advantage of the chart. Even though you can't read it, I can point to the different parts and I can still talk about the timeline and interpret it for you. Uh, it's kind of like tongues. There needs to be an interpretation given. And this is my handwriting. Even if it was big, you would need an interpretation. Um, so let's talk about the time period when Ezra and Nehemiah takes place. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. It was originally one book that was meant to show the return of Israel from exile and how the kingdom gets reestablished when they come back. Exile, what's this all about? We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, this book is a quasi-sequel to Chronicles. In fact, if you have your Bibles and you look at Ezra and you turn the page before, one of the things you're going to notice is that the first three verses of Ezra are a repeat of the ending of Chronicles. So this is just sort of taking the ending of Chronicles, repeating it, and then what happens next. So this is about as close to a fresh sequel as you could possibly get, I think. Um, so let's talk about the timeline of Israel. Around 1000 BC, you have David, king of a united Israel. You have Solomon, king of a united Israel. In 931, uh, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who was definitely not Rehoboam's brother. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I got called out on that last week saying that. I've been saying it for two years in that class I was teaching at Bellhaven. It was in my notes. And none of these students ever called me out on it because they probably didn't know. Um, so Charlie spoke up. Thank you, Charlie, uh, last week. So the, the notes are fixed now. But in 931, the kingdom divides. The next big event is 722 when the northern kingdom falls. Uh, and then finally, in 586, you have the fall of Jerusalem, where everybody gets carried off by the Babylonians. Um, or at least those who are left are very few. There are very few left behind by that point. So the big event after that, though, is 538, where they come back from exile. And then you have 536, when the temple gets rebuilt. So I'm just running you through a timeline here, and then we're going to go back and we're going to review what, what some of this actually means. 458 is when Ezra comes to Jerusalem, and then 445, Nehemiah arrives. I'm going to point to the chart when we get to each of these steps so that you can follow along with what's happening. Um, but the book begins with this. It's the decree of Cyrus. So the book of Ezra begins with these words. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So this is Cyrus's, we're going to talk about who Cyrus is in a second. This is Cyrus's decree. What does he say? He says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, by the way, in the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. He uses Yahweh's name when he makes this proclamation. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God. That's in Jerusalem. One of the more interesting things is he said that this God is in Jerusalem. One of the things you see with the ancient religions is this belief that there's a local, localization to the gods. 
Um, there's a God who dwells in this place. There's a God who dwells in that place. And uh, one of the things you see with Cyrus is he, he's actually so, um, what's the word I want to use? He is so almost polytheistic that he's fine talking about Yahweh. He's fine acknowledging Yahweh being God. He even says Yahweh is the one who stirred me up to do this. Um, he's so open-minded that there's almost nothing that he won't let in, you know? <laughs> What's that? Ecumenical. He's, he's very ecumenical, right? This guy, he's like, everybody's right. Um, that's kind of the way Cyrus seems to think. But these verses set up the whole agenda for the entire book. They, they set uh, the stage for Ezra. They set the stage for Nehemiah as well. And so in Ezra 1, what do you have? You have a devastated Jerusalem, flattened. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There is no wall in Jerusalem. And then in Nehemiah 12, 27, they celebrate the completion of the wall. First, the temple gets built. Then the wall gets built. And that's the plan. So historical note. I want to give you guys some historical notes when, when we have these sorts of things. If you ever see the ESV has what's called an archaeology study Bible. Sometimes the ESV archaeology study Bible is not very interesting. Because they don't have a lot to say about the archaeology in vast swaths of the Old Testament. You know, reading the Psalms and the archaeology study Bible, not a lot of helpful stuff in the notes. But then you come to Ezra and Nehemiah and it's just, they just lay on the archaeology notes. Because there's a lot that they have to say. And among the notes, one of the things I found was there's this, this document called the Cyrus Cylinder. So the way that they would write in the ancient Near East, they would get these circles, they would get these uh, pillars, and they would actually write around the outside of the cylinders about great feats that their kings had accomplished. And they found a Cyrus cylinder with a message on it. So I'm just going to read you this message from Cyrus I. This is the same Cyrus that's being talked about here. This is what he wrote. I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. So translation, there were all these people who used to live on the other side of the Tigris River, and I sent them back and let them rebuild their temple. Um, So this is just a historical document uh, completely just validating, which we already know it's in the text of scripture, but I always like finding archaeology and saying, hey, look, this is archaeologically uh, been verified. This is something that we can see lining up with what we know of history. So the, the Cyrus Cylinder, you can look it up on Google. You can find pictures of it, but you can't read it probably. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. Who carried off the Israelites into, uh, into exile? Babylonians. Yeah, the Babylonians are the ones who crush Jerusalem and carry them off. And what is Cyrus? He's Persian. So how is it that the Persians are letting the Israelites go back to the land? The answer is the Persians took over and conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And the very next year, Cyrus is like, let's get these Jewish people out of here. Let's get them back to their land. So as soon as he takes over, he just kind of starts currying favor with as many people as he can. Cyrus's plan is not to crush these other nations. His plan is to curry their favor. His plan is to make friendships in the ancient world instead of, uh, instead of just be feared by everybody. Because that's what the Babylonians were. The Babylonians were feared. They crushed their enemies. And they end up collapsing. They end up not being able to withstand the Persians. 
Cyrus is a bit of a diplomat. Uh, and so you see that here. You see that diplomatic side, especially starting off, you know. Um, we saw that with Rehoboam, right? What's his plan? I'm going to discipline you as scorpions. I'm going to be hard on you guys. And he could have, you know, if he hadn't come first, he could have taken a lesson from Cyrus. You know, maybe be nice to your new subjects instead of crushing them. And so he sends them back in 538. He sends them back. The group that goes back is about 50,000 people. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so let's talk about the narrative. Ezra 1 to 6 tells us about how Israel actually ends up returning from exile. So Cyrus thinks he's been stirred up by God uh, to send Israel back to their land. I say he thinks that because I don't know how uh, Cyrus actually has access to the, the planning and, and will of God. But it does seem that whatever happens, he goes back because God does stir him up. Whether he's really aware of God's spiritual influence over him is something, is something else to be debated. But there's no doubt that God literally does stir him up to send, send Israel back. And when he does this, he fulfills a prophecy. And the prophecy, I have a little reference here, uh, just wrote here, I scribbled it down. It's Jeremiah 29.10. Jeremiah 29.10. It also says the same thing in Jeremiah 25.11. I could have written them both if you're writing down references. It's Jeremiah 25.11, Jeremiah 29.10. Here's what Jeremiah 29.10 says. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So I want you to just notice this. Um, and the timing here is exquisite. You're going to see this in a little bit because they run into hitches throughout the construction of the temple. They, Jerusalem falls in 586. The temple is completed in 516. How many years is that? It's 70. It's 70 years exactly between when Israel goes into exile and when the temple gets completed. 70 years. Just beautiful. I just, I love the, the prophecy. I love it all. It's great. Um, so 50,000 people return to Jerusalem in this first wave of settlers. Um, Cyrus also makes uh, part of his agenda that the temple is going to be restored. Nebuchadnezzar tore this temple down 70 years before. He's like, hey, I hate that guy. Uh, I kicked him and his descendants' butts. We're going to do something different. We're going to put that temple right back, and we're going to show that we're better than Nebuchadnezzar. You can think of all the political reasons why he might have to do this. Uh, but he doesn't. And so in Ezra 3.2, they arrive. They make an effort to survey the site of the old temple. They find the exact spot where the altar of burnt offering once stood. And they sort of organize the construction of the temple around this area. It's, so, it's laid so low that they actually have to put a lot of effort into finding where was the temple before? Uh, where was this? Uh, and where was the altar? So they find it. Uh, it says, um, one of the really powerful moments in Ezra 3.12, it says that a lot of these old men who had been at the temple and seen it before... It says they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the shout of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. So it's this really powerful moment where those who saw the old temple are just, they're overcome with emotion. Um, this is something that they never expected to live to see. To actually see that temple come down. They saw the temple torn down or they heard the temple being torn down and they never thought they'd see it again. I mean, think of what an, a magnificent accomplish Solomon's temple was. 
one of the wonders of the world. Just this extraordinary building, this extraordinary edifice to the Israelite God. And here it is, and it's being rebuilt. And, and with foreign money, no less. Um, they're building, they're doing the work, but there is resistance. I'm going to flip this back up for now. So I can write stuff. Um, there's resistance to the rebuilding work. In Ezra 4, it says, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. The people of the land would have been the Samaritans and the Horonites. Um, Sanballat is the leader of the Horonites. Um, some people say the Samaritans and the Horonites are the same people. Um, but at least in the text, they distinguish between the two of them. So these people of the land don't want Israel to be strengthened again. They're benefiting from the weakness of these people. They're benefiting from the fact that Jerusalem doesn't have walls. They're, they're able to raid these people. They're able to harass these people. There's just really no political benefit to Israel being strengthened again or Jerusalem being, being strong. There's no good for them. And so they oppose it. Um, in fact, here's what happens. The building begins, the foundations get laid, the people rejoice. You can't tell who's crying and who's laughing and who's happy. And then they have to stop work for 15 years. Which does this just sound, if you've ever tried to build anything or hire a contractor or been a contractor, doesn't this just sound exactly like the way things go? Uh, you start the work and then things have to stop. And so what happens is this. There's this back and forth between the people of the land and King Darius, Darius. I hear his name said both ways. I think I say it both ways. I don't know if it's a Kansan thing, but I think Kansans say things multiple ways. We will say soda. We'll say pop. We'll say soda pop. Uh, in Mississippi, we always got laughed at because we, we never said Coke. Uh, even when we got a Coke, you know, it was like, I'm going to find some other way to say this because I'm not going to be a Southerner. Um, <laughs> and, when, and I say this, do the same thing with Darius and Darius. I say both of them. Um, here's what happens. Darius is the new king. So you had Cyrus. And then uh, the new king is Darius. I guess I'm picking that one. That's how I'm going to say it. Um, the new king is Darius. So Darius is presiding over this event that Cyrus decreed. And here's what happens. The people of the land, they know that the new king in Persia doesn't understand what's happening here. And so they play off of him. They, they write to him and they say, hey, do you know these people are trying to strengthen their land? These people are trying to build their temple. They're going to get strong again. And so they try throwing these roadblocks in and until the point that they actually have to stop. And then there's this dig for documents in the royal archives and somebody finds the document that says the decree of Cyrus and says that they're going to pay for it. And when they do, uh, Darius sends money and he sends resources and he makes sure that the temple's able to be built. Now that sounds boring to us as readers, but I don't think it's boring at all because guess what? What was the timeline that we heard from Jeremiah again that has to be when the temple gets rebuilt? 70 years. You know, if it had been built when they wanted to, it would not have been 70 years. It would have been, you know, 58 years or something like that. Uh, but by God's providence, by God's work, um, it's exactly 70 years between when Jerusalem falls and when the temple is actually completed. You know, for the, for the Israelite people, that's a huge irritation. 15 years is a really long time to sort of spin your wheels in place. Um, and yet it's God's providence. It's God's timing. It's God's work. This is exactly when it's supposed to happen. Um, it takes four years once they resume. So it's finished in 516. 
Um, it's paid for out of the treasury of Darius. I love this passage. It says, moreover, I make a decree concerning what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. That's extraordinary. This is a humbled, destroyed people that somehow are able to build a temple. It took the height of David's power and wealth, the peace of the kingdom for them to be able to rebuild the temple during the time of David. And here they are, they're able to do it in these distressing conditions, all because of this decree by Cyrus and Darius. You get to Ezra chapter 7, and Ezra actually appears, which that is the year 458, quite a while after the temple physically is built. So you have Ezra 7. That's when Ezra actually shows up. The book's named after him. He doesn't show up for um, 50 years after the book actually starts. During this time, between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, you have the book of Esther take place. So the book of Esther happens during this time period between these two chapters. She becomes Queen Vashti. The Jewish people gain a favorable status in the eyes of the state. Ezra arrives in Jerusalem in 458. Ezra shows up. What is Ezra? Ezra is a scribe. He's a priest. He's a descendant of Aaron. He is a teacher who's well-versed in the law of Moses. In other words, this is a guy who knows how to open his Bible and understand what's there. He's been trained to read the scripture. He's been trained to interpret it. But he also has a secular job. He's a high official in Persia. Um, there's a few commentaries where they talk about what should he actually be called. One of the titles proposed is Sec- Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs. Would be a, a similar title for this guy. So he's got an important job. Um, you know, the, the king makes this decree. He wants to make sure that this stuff actually follows through. Uh, for them, the Jewish state is like a vassal state. They still have to answer to, um, to the king. And so it says the good, good hand of God was on him. It says that six times in the narrative, that the good hand was on Ezra. His work is not physical. This is not a guy who's there to build anything. This is not a guy who would know anything about building anything. That's me, by the way. Um, you know, don't call me if you need to fix something in your house. I'll stand there and cheer you on. Um, I'll offer moral support. I'll pull up the YouTube video of someone else fixing it. But... Uh, you know, don't say, hey, you know, my car needs fixed. I better call Adam up. That's not his forte. Uh, I'm an interpreter of the law. I'm not, uh, not an engineer. But if there's some people that have been deported that need to be brought back, we'll call on you? Yes. If there's a deportation and a return, I will, I will step up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what does he do? Ezra teaches the people. He works on setting up the priesthood. He prays for the people. He leads the people in confessing sin. And one of the big things that he has to do is confront the people about marrying pagans because that's something that ends up happening over the course of many years as they're living in this area and as their religion has sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, So that's Ezra. When you come over to Nehemiah, the first seven chapters follow the building of the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, Think about this. You've got a temple in a city, and yet the city is wide open for attack. Anybody can come in. Anybody can invade. Uh, As long as there is not a wall around Jerusalem, Jerusalem is in danger. And so that's what they set about doing. Now, how does that happen? 
Well, this is where the narrative brings us to this fellow, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He works for the king of Babylon. Uh, this is a guy who's trustworthy. This is a guy that, uh, the, that the king, I guess it would be king of Persia, this is somebody who's trusted. This is somebody who, who holds the cup. That means that if the king dies, he dies. That means if the king gets poisoned, then he dies. Because not only is he trusted with the cup, but he also gets poisoned because he has to taste the cup before the king has a drink. They did not have any concerns about social distancing. He's going to drink after this guy. So he's constantly with the king. He's constantly in the king's presence. Uh, In Nehemiah 1.3, the narrative begins where he meets this traveler. He asks that this is a person that has been from Jerusalem. He says, what's Jerusalem like? How is Jerusalem doing? And this man responds that there are people left, but it says they live in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah hears this about his home country. He hears this about his people. He's heartbroken. And so he weeps and he mourns and he prays. And he says that sin is the reason for this. He says, we have acted wickedly. He gives this confession. The king sees Nehemiah. He sees how distraught this guy is. He sees that his eyes are red or that he seems really upset and that he's got a sad face. And so Nehemiah just says, well, look, king, you asked. King Artaxerxes, you've asked. So I'm going to tell you I am heartbroken because of what's going on with Jerusalem. The city has no walls and they're vulnerable. And the people who live in the area, well, they hate our people. And so here's the plan. The king says, I'm going to send you there. You can build up the walls. And he gets there. And the plan is, how are we going to build these walls up? And the way they decide to do it is they segment out the the entire wall all around Jerusalem. And they break it up by family. So each of the families in Jerusalem has a responsibility for their own portion of the wall. Uh, They work with their tools. And they work with their weapons at the ready. This is one of the more interesting things. They have a sword hanging on their side, even as they're working with their trowel and their bricks and they're building the wall up. They're always ready to fight at any given moment, even as they're given the work of being constructive. And I think that's, I think that's an incredible reminder, at least to the church, certainly to elders in the church, that the work has to be done where you're positive, you're constructing, you're building up, but at the same time, you have to be able to answer um, enemies, not with an actual sword, but you need to be ready to be defensive and offensive at the same time. And that's sort of what you see happening with the construction of Jerusalem. Um, They sleep fully clothed. They're always ready. (laughs) At any moment, these people are going to jump out and attack you, so you have to always be ready to fight. And you probably want them to see you always ready for a fight. Uh, Half of it is just letting them know we are ready for you at any given moment. So what happens in Nehemiah 8? So the, the walls are rebuilt. The walls are up. The gates are put in place. There's a huge celebration. The people rededicate themselves to God. They make it official that you can't marry pagans. They rededicate themselves to that. That's a big deal, by the way, just addressing the fact that people have been marrying pagans. That's personal, right? Because you're saying that, and you know this guy over here who married a pagan. You know, he married somebody who's not a, a Jewish person and certainly doesn't so, uh, worship Yahweh. That's going to be difficult to do, and they address it. They, they, they deal with it head on. And the final part of Nehemiah shows us a people who are set apart from the, for the Lord under Ezra's leadership as they begin to read the law. Um, what does that look like? Well, they start to celebrate the Sabbath again. Uh, they start to observe the Passover. They hadn't been celebrating the Passover. 
Um, Ezra makes arrangements to make sure the priests can serve so their families can be provided for. I don't know how they were provided for before, but the people start to give tithes again. You read the Old Testament, tithes are not money. Tithes are food. So it's agricultural. So when they're, they're giving tithes, what are they doing? They're harvesting. They're getting grain. They're getting food. And they're making sure to bring a tenth of that so the priests can be provided for and so they can function as priests again. Um, really important for the lifeblood of Israel. If they're going to be a religious society, then the religious leaders need to be taken care of or they're not going to be able to do their work. They're just going to be farmers. So here's what also happens as you get to the end of Ezra. And as a preacher, this is one of the sections that really stirs me up to read Nehemiah chapter eight because the word of God takes central stage in the life of this renewed and rebuilt Israel. Um, Ezra leads the people in reading scripture publicly. So what happens is the people all stand for the reading of God's word. And he reads from God's word from morning until afternoon. Um, just a long stretches where the people are giving God their attention. You know, they're not sitting, they're not relaxing. They're really attentive because, you know, standing does make you more attentive and sitting does make you a little sleepy like you might be feeling right now. Um, <laughs> Hopefully not, but maybe. <laughs> you know, if you were standing, and, and this is what I do in long meetings, I can guarantee you on uh, Friday when our presbytery meeting is going on, there's going to come a point where I'm going to stand in the back because I'm going to be ready to fall asleep, and I don't want to do that, so I stand. Um, we stand to show that we give attention. Um, uh, standing is a way of showing honor, showing respect. It's not that sitting is disrespectful, but... It's what they do. It's what the people in Israel do. So they do this also. They, they have this physical renewal, but they also have spiritual renewal. You could have Jerusalem have this physical renewal again. They could have their temple building and they could have their physical walls rebuilt again. And at some point, if they are not spiritually renewed, they're just going to become sick again. They're going to become anemic again. They're going to have the same problems that led to them being exiled to Babylon in the first place. And so this spiritual renewal is really important for Israel. And by the end of the book, what they do is they, they seal the covenant between themselves and God. They have sacrifices in the temple. And the book ends on this really optimistic note. The, the promises that God made in the book of Jeremiah by the end of the book actually come true. So it's a really happy ending, actually, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Five themes in this book. Five themes that I want to draw your attention to in this book. First is this. I'm going to erase that. The first theme is this. The theme of God's word. Really prevalent in all that happens here. Um, these events happen to fulfill God's word. Right? It says, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God's word ends up coming true. Um, God's word helps interpret and make sense of what happens, right? Because when they're off in, in exile and they're, and they're serving God in exile, one of the things they'll see are two things. They'll see why this happened. It was because of our sin. And they'll see that what was spoken of did happen. And then they're going to see that it's only 70 years. So they're also going to see that there's a light at the end of this tunnel. So they're encouraged, they're built up, they're assured by God's word that even, yes, this happened, but it happened because God is our covenant God. And so we know that he's going to keep his covenant as well, and he's going to return us from exile when the time comes. 
Um, so God's word ends up being really central to Israel while they're in exile. But then also think about this. The restoration happens when they put God's word at the center. There's a lot of public reading of scripture. Um, one of the notes that I have a little, at my, on my computer at home, I have a little, little note cards with different Bible verses on them. And one of them that I have written that I love helps me stay on task when I'm preparing sermons. So it's Nehemiah 8.8. So it comes from the book. Come, uh, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. If you think about how many people are in Jerusalem that need to hear the word of God, and they need to hear it loudly, and so you've got to stand and you've got to speak clearly. You can't mumble. You can't speak under your breath. You have to speak loudly and clearly. And it says they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. So they're reading the text, and then they're stopping, and they're explaining what the text actually means. And, they're, and then they go back and they read more of the text. And I hope that at least what we do here on Sunday mornings reminds you of that. I hope that what we're doing is we're reading the text, and then whoever's preaching, whether it's me or Matthew or someone else, that you hear the word being explained so that you have a sense of the text. And then we read more of it. And then we ask God, what are you saying to us here in the word? That's the plan. And the prototype of preaching then shows up here, I think for the first time in scripture in Nehemiah chapter 8. These things were taking place before, but here you actually see it happening and you see it happening in a way that's inscripturated. So that's the first thing, the importance of God's word. The second issue uh, is the issue of justice. One of the events that happens in Nehemiah chapter 5 is this. There are poor people who are being oppressed. You think about what happens here. In Babylon, people have, some of them have really gotten a lot of money. Some of them have resources. And so when they come back from Babylon, they come back from exile. It's not like they return empty-handed. They come back with the spoils of Babylon. They come back with the things that they've gotten there. And there are these nobles and there are officials. And what happens in Nehemiah 5 is they take advantage of their position and they're pushing the people back into slavery. Um, They're using their authority. They're using their ability to benefit off the backs of these other people who are their fellow Israelites. Um, And Nehemiah addresses this. Nehemiah sees this going on. He addresses it. And so he bans the wealthy from charging interest. It's one of the things he does. He also says you can't, Uh, He returns confiscated property to its original owners. Now, this is probably not a way to build a um, democratic society. And I don't think we want to take our notes necessarily from how the Jewish people are supposed to treat one another as fellow Israelites. Um, It's hard to imagine why anyone would lend money if they couldn't get interest. Um, Although the government doesn't get much interest at the moment. Um, but um, But what he does do is he says, look... In Nehemiah 5.8, listen to what he says. We have, brought, we have brought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold to the nations, but even you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So he's like, look, these are your brothers, your fellow Israelites. You, you are all people of Judah and you're treating each other like this. That guy over there is gonna be in slavery for the rest of his life. Because of the way that you're treating him. And so he says, look, we've got to deal with this issue of justice in Jerusalem. Now, 
How does that translate over to today? How does this translate to us as, as a church? I don't think it's healthy for us to go, well, Israel's supposed to do that. So the United States today should do that because the United States is not the new Israel. The United States is not the new analog to Israel. We're not parallel to Israel. The parallel to Israel is the church. Um, we are God's people. Um, we are, in a sense, Israel now. We are grafted into Israel. We're part of Israel. And so this is a question for churches to ask themselves about how they treat fellow brothers and sisters. Just as the Israelites are supposed to treat their brothers and sisters in Yahweh um, as brothers and sisters, same thing goes for the church. In churches, I think one of the applications of this would mean that we have an obligation to make sure that, that other members of the church don't live in financial slavery. Um, if someone in the church is hurting, we as members or even as church leaders need to help them meet their needs. Now, how to do that and how to work that out, that's challenging. That's the sort of things that, that deacons focus on a great deal. Um, it's not really an obligation to make sure there are no poor people in society. Um, that is not a bad thing to do, but it is beyond the church's ability and it is beyond the church's mission. Uh, a Christian can help with these things, but a church that tries regulating how people outside of God's Israel, how they economically behave is going to find itself very, very far off course very quickly. Um, but the issue of justice, the issue of justice within Israel matters to God. How we care for our brothers and sisters matters to God. Uh, another issue, that's a bad looking K. Still a bad looking king. Um, another issue I want us to look at is the validity of a secular calling. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a job. His job is to be the cup bearer for the king. His job is not even religious. Uh, his job is I'm going to hold the cup for the king and I'm going to hope nobody poisons him. I'm going to make close friends with those who are in power and I'm just going to do my job and I'm going to live out my faith as someone who trusts in the living God. Um, and I think there's a lesson here. I think one of the lessons is we must get it out of our heads that only those who become pastors or missionaries are living for the Lord. That's not true. Nehemiah is legitimately living out his faith as somebody who holds the cup of the king. And so that means, uh, yeah, go ahead, Charlie. Yeah. Hold the king's cup. Yeah. And he's not a great man. I mean, he's a pagan guy. So, um, uh, But, the, but the, the idea here is that we all can live in a way that honors God in whatever legitimate field of work we go into. Um, Nehemiah's work is one where he shows trustworthiness. He shows honesty. He shows faithfulness. He shows that even in a secular vocation that you can live in a way that is in keeping with your faith. And that's what this guy does. Uh, he finds a way to serve the king without compromising. Uh, fourth theme. How much time we got? Oh, two minutes. Bad handwriting, but it's an S word. Sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Um, as with so many other places in scripture, the philosophical and technical realities about how God is sovereign over human responsibility and human decision, they're assumed. The, the assumption here is that God is sovereign over what's taking place and the mechanism is not spelled out for us. It's not spelled out for us how it is that uh, 
uh, Darius or Cyrus wants to send them back and God decrees for him to decree to send them back. It's just not explained. We know that it's given in detail. We know elsewhere in the scripture that Cyrus is named. Um, and yet at the same time, it just, they don't tell us. But the assumption is God is in control. Um, Cyrus issues the decree, but God moves the heart. And so God's sovereignty works itself out through all of these events that take place until eventually the house is rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt, and Israel itself is renewed spiritually. All of it happens under the sovereignty of God. They go from being in exile in Babylon, weeping and playing their harps by the river. And then by the end of this book, here they are, they're rejoicing, they're singing, they're, they're observing the Sabbath again. They have priests, the priests are sacrificing again. Israel is renewed. So really uh, amazing, beautiful display of the sovereignty of God. And then finally, um, I feel bad that this is getting short shrift. because here we are at the end. But the idea of the punishment of God or the covenant of God. Why is covenant relevant to this book? Covenant is the explanation for why Israel is in Babylon to begin with. We talked last week about the events of 2 Kings 6, about how they are a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, how all these terrible things that take place within the walls of the city, people eating their children, all of them specifically told to us in Deuteronomy chapter 28, so that we know that the covenant of God is the reason they're in this position in the first place, but we also know that the covenant of God is the reason that God brings them back. So he takes them away and he brings them back. He chastised them and then he restored them. Ezra 9.13, it says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. You took us into Babylon. You took us away. You tore our city down. You took away our temple. You took away our security. You took away our walls. You did all of this. And they say, you gave us less than our iniquities deserved. Mm. The fact that Israel can be mature enough in the book of Ezra to recognize that is beautiful and it's remarkable. Because what do they say? They get to the end and they say, we were at fault. We broke the covenant. We didn't keep our promises. And while we were faithless, oh God, you were faithful. While we were faithless, oh God, you kept your promises and you kept your covenant. And so covenant is hugely central to this book because it's the explanation for why the book has to exist in the first place. And it's an explanation for why God does what he does in this book to begin with. God is faithful. That's the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, let's pray. Lord, we see the theme of your covenant running through all of Scripture, God, as we remember that you are a God who makes promises. You are good to your people. You do not treat us the way that our iniquities deserve because you have set your eyes upon us, not because of our righteousness, but because you are a kind God who have decided to be gracious to us. And so we thank you, O God. We ask that you would help for us to go this week walking in your covenant faithfulness, remembering that it's your faithfulness that carries us. It's your faithfulness that sustains us so that we remember, O God, even when we are faithless, you are not. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.